How do you turn a film school rejection into a career as a working director? This is Gigi Hawkins for the No Film School podcast, and this week I speak with DGA Award-nominated director Tracy Hayes. Tracy is celebrating the release of her second feature, Blood, Sweat, and Cheer, which you can now stream on Tubi. It's a dark comedy thriller following a suburban divorcee masquerading as her teenage daughter in a twisted attempt to make the dance squad at a local high school. And it's inspired by true events. You can't make this up, folks. Tracy's directorial debut tangled a romantic comedy based on the series by a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author Emma Chase premiered in 2022. And in our conversation, we talk about what that looks like to make feature number two, something that is incredibly difficult, arguably more difficult than making feature number one. Tracy also talks to us about mentorship, including her study under notable directors of films, including Grease, Valley Girl, and Saturday Night Fever. Finally, we will dig into how Tracy's experience, extensive experience working in production design, helped her gain the knowledge that she needs to be at the center of it all as a director leading her films. And finally, Tracy gives us an overview, a play-by-play about how she was able to shoot this second feature in 13 days, a crash course in filmmaking, if you will. So let's listen. Well, welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So obviously, we're going to get into your film, Blood, Sweat, and Cheer. But before that, I'd love to hear about your journey uh, becoming a filmmaker because you didn't start as a director. Yes, you did your homework. I love it. (laughs) Yes, it is quite a journey. And it's uh, one that I'm, you know, I'm still on and there's a lot that I'm still in process, but I didn't have anyone in the business. No one in my family was a filmmaker or part of the film business. I grew up in Northern California in, in the Bay area. Wait, San Jose. Me too. Where? Oh, oh San Jose. Yeah. East Bay. That's why, okay. Yeah. I have my 408 area code still. It's uh represent. It's so funny. The there's this energy that just brings more people together that are from the Bay. I love it. <laughs> totally. Totally. I was um, in a workout class and some E40 came on and I was like, this is bringing me back to middle school. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't believe it. Yeah. Northern California. So I, you know, born, born and raised, uh, oldest of four. I, it's interesting when I was a kid, my, I grew up and my dream was to be a professional soccer player. Uh, like Mia Hamm and Brandy Chastain, the women, oh, those yeah. are my idols. I looked up to them. I went to, you know, watch the World Cup when they came to, to Los Angeles to play at the Rose Bowl. And, you know, it was it was such an exciting time for me growing up and being an active kid. And I was actually uh, born with a rare congenital heart defect. So I think part of my journey as a young kid was that I you know, it kind of slowed me down. I wasn't like as physically like able as I could have been. So uh, that's kind of where my journey took a turn, you know, from film, uh, from soccer and ultimately led me to filmmaking. I was playing 
a high school a high school championship soccer game and I ended up passing out in the oh middle God. of this game. Uh, obviously, I was fine, but realized I needed uh, a third open heart surgery. Wow! Uh, to fix my atrium that had grown, you know, from a child, and so I, it was just, you know, very scary moment in my life as a young adult, not knowing what was going to happen next, and I. You know, thought I was on one path, and so here I was in the hospital for many months recovering and and watching more film and television that I frankly had ever watched before. And so that was that was the moment and the seed that I remember where I started to watch movies in a new way. You know, Sound of Music, The Wizard of Oz, Anne of Green Gables, like every MGM musical you can imagine. I I watched. I you know went to the you know two VHS, got to go down to the uh, movie store and rent two VHS tapes a week and got to watch a lot of movies that way. And Those were the days that like, <laughs> you get to yes. pick them out, like physically browsing as opposed to just scrolling. It was kids yeah, out there. The, it was great. <laughs> you could look at the cover, the back and the front cover of the VHS tape. And it was this very sacred, you know, Friday night movie night was, was really the the moment in our house where we got to like watch TV because really I didn't really grow up in front of a TV. I was a really active kid. I was always outdoors. I was always being creative and playing sports. So while I was recovering, I remember watching The Wizard of Oz for the first time. And I was blown away when that moment, that visual moment when Dorothy goes from like that sepia tone color and she opens her door and she's in Oz and it's like technicolor world. And I don't, I just remember being just so captivated and wondering like how that was done. And like, I was so curious and that I just remember that was sort of the beginning of, you know, my curiosity. And I started writing and directing my own little movies with my family and mm-hmm. my younger siblings. And I would enlist the neighborhood kids and we'd be doing these ridiculous, you know, <laughs> silly movies. Uh, and then I uh, apply or I, I went to uh, my local junior college's little film class and took my first you know, shot my first movie on black and white 16 millimeter and went to wow. Deluxe in San Francisco and got it uh, processed. And that was sort of, I was off to the races after that. I mean, it was, it was just like all I could think and dream about was making movies and watching, you know, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's films and Lord of the Rings and behind the scenes and Peter, yeah. Jackson, Peter Jackson and all these like extended editions and like, you know, 20 hours or however many crazy behind the scenes they did back then it wasn't accessible when I was younger. So I just like blew my, I was like, I blew my mind. And I think what solidified it was when I went to the backlot tour at universal studios when I was a teenager, uh-huh. I'm on the trail and tram. And obviously now looking back, I feel it, it's quite silly. Uh, but I, cause now I'm like the person that everyone, you know, like you're on the back lot and you're seeing the tram and it was just a, that just happened to me yesterday. I'm not even (laughs) kidding you. I went to go see a screening of Renfield at Universal. And it was my first time like doing like one of these screenings at the studio. And I was like, it's right next to Universal Studios. What if I see the tour? And then I saw the tour and I was like, this is the moment. And I've been on the tour twice. This is the moment where they're like, and this is the real Universal Studios. These are real people, not actors. And I was like, and now I'm that person. It was so weird. Yes, so now you're that yes. person. 
it was that yeah i love those little full circle moments that you don't realize you know you can stop and appreciate and yeah so i i ended up applying to film school at chapman university mm-hmm. in orange county and Fun fact, I, I don't even know if I've shared this, but I actually didn't get in the first time I applied. Zero I, shame. I, yeah, I got into some other schools. I toured a bunch, but I really wanted to go to Chapman. So I reapplied and got in. <laughs> so nice. um, very determined. And it was such a great time and met some incredible collaborators that I'm still working with to this day. I mean, it's it's a community of really established, creative, talented people. And I met some mentors while Mm -hmm. I was there that I'm still in contact with today, like uh, Martha Coolidge, who directed Real Genius and, oh my gosh, uh, Valley Girl. And she's Mm -hmm. a huge influence on on how I'm, you know, just as a filmmaker and another, as a, you know, as another woman and just like her experiences. And I can't tell you how much I value. That was such a nice thing to have in that support um Absolutely. and then randall Kleidler, who directed greece he was oh, my mentor yeah he's such a sweetheart he oversaw my senior thesis film that i directed and uh and then randall Kleidler, who unfortunately is no longer with us but he is an incredible production was an cr- incredible production designer he made uh he worked on films like uh, Back to the Future, my favorite oh, movie of all time. Heard of it, love it. No, that movie. And he did uh, Romancing the Stone mm-hmm. and Blade Runner. And and so that's where I, I went to film school knowing I wanted to be a director, but I also was really interested in visual design because I, I have a really creative eye and I thought, why not take a production design class? And that's mm-hmm. where I met uh, Larry Paul, who... Um, just started to have these ridiculous, crazy stories, but and and about the business, but really helped shape my understanding of how, you know, how to tell a story through design. Frankly, and and wow. it was just, you know, it was this great. I, I'm so so thankful and grateful that I had that time because you know I directed a number of films in school, but also was production designing a bunch, uh, and that's ultimately what helped me pay rent and stay in the business and be in the middle of of everything so yeah. you know when I graduated I wasn't looking to be the nine to five or out of the business I wanted to be in the middle of it and learn from other people and be in those rooms and be head of a department so I think I PA'd for one day on a on a on, I was like a PA for this Nike commercial and hated it so much I'm like I'm never gonna PA again and I, and I never did <laughs> like I don't know I just started production designing right away and was very successful and you know, obviously that brought me a decade of experience and I could go on and on, but that was sort of the the journey of, of, from, you know, when you're a kid and not knowing what you want, I was one of those weirdos that knew from a young age, I wanted to be a filmmaker. So I, I'm noticing a few things. One, the fact that you didn't get into film school the first time around the one you wanted to is a great way to prepare for this industry an industry where rejection just comes with it. Like most of the people that I interviewed at Sundance who were premiering their films there were like, yeah, we applied to the Sundance labs, got rejected six times, got in on the seventh time. And on top of that, I think specifically what I've heard about the Chapman experience is it's very geared towards working in this industry, building a career in this industry. I mean, every movie that you listed up from your mentors, these are movie movies. These are not 
art house films, Grease, like these are the films that inspire us and have that sort of like movie magic that the, uh, I mean this in the most loving way because I miss it in movies. It's the, the magic schlock of film. And I feel like we're missing that uh, these days sometimes. And I'm like searching for it and searching for it. So what a, what a wonderful way to get your start. So moving into production design, which by the way, having that background as a director feels like a superpower because you really know how to make the everything show on the screen. What types of projects were you working on when you were working in that field? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's so interesting. A lot of uh, a number of production designers that I looked up to also became directors, uh, like James Cameron and uh, Catherine Hardwick and Ridley Scott. And it was it's interesting because, yeah, as a designer, I, you know, I'm in the room. I'm I'm there for all the conversations that are happening and helping build a world. Frankly, from the from the ground up, and so it was such a honor. I worked on so many incredible, I've worked on over 30 feature films, uh, including A Nice Girl Like You with Lucy Hale, fun rom-com, and then a film that actually came out later, got delayed because of COVID called A Little White Lie, starring Michael Shannon and Kate Hudson. Mm-hmm. And that was a really fun film to work on. Uh, I have just, I've done Dead Girl Detective Agency. It was the original series. I've I mean, I'm just, you know, I've done commercials for Nike and Starbucks and I could, yeah, just a really an array of con, you know, content, but mostly in the film and television space and Mm -hmm. some commercials that's been my focus as both, you know, as a designer and a director, but it was, yeah, it was an incredible time. You know, I got to really work with some incredible directors and learn, you know, what, you know, what not to do and watch people make mistakes and how to how to make your day and stay on budget mm-hmm. and make those hard decisions and you know it to be in the middle of it in the middle of the chaos is sort of where i thrive yeah uh, when so what was something that you brought into originally making your your first film which is not blood sweat and cheer but from the, you mean like the first one I directed like yeah. ever or my yeah. first feature? Sorry, your first, <laughs> your first feature, your first feature, my first feature. Okay, so Tangled was my Tangled. first feature. So yeah. so when you moved into directing Tangled and being the helm of the entire production, what was the the biggest sort of thing that you took into that from your previous experience? Was so much ex- extensive experience on set both directing and also working in other parts of production. But what was the thing where you're like, I'm never going to do this and I'm always going to do this. Yeah. I mean, Tinkle getting, you know, getting to that point with Tinkle, that wasn't a journey in, in and of itself. I had production designed uh, five or six movies for that production company, Passion Flicks, and they turn romance novels into movies sort of like the Bridgertons and um, Fifty Shades of Grey, like that kind of model. And I was just really vocal about, you know, wanting to direct for them. And so they had given me uh, a short a short film that went on their platform. I did really well. And it was more of a comedic uh, film. And I hadn't really done comedy up to that point. As a director, most of the work I had done is more dramatic-based uh, work. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was a really, 
once that did really well and took off and, you know, was the highest, you know, watched, you know, opening weekend on their platform. And they're just like, we see the potential and we, we want to give you the opportunity to direct your first feature. So it was really an incredible opportunity. And I'm so grateful that they entrusted me with, you know, a best-selling, a best-selling novel that's really beloved. And yeah, I just wanted to do it justice. And, you know, I think what's so different, like I had directed like a dozen short films, but I think what was so different was, was adapting a book. I mean, I, someone had written, had adapted it, but just prior to me getting involved, but to, to do something justice like that and to, and to make sure that you weren't cutting corners or, or taking away a moment that was really important to the fans of the book and also honoring the writing, but also keeping in mind that you're adapting it for the screen and sort of the challenges that came along with that. And it is a comedic tone, comedic in tone, but it's tough because you, we couldn't really, we did some improv, but it really ultimately, you know, we had to be by stick to the, to the book as much as we could. Yeah. We did go off book a little bit here and there to tr- just try and see what would land. But ultimately, you know, we went back, we made sure that we had what we need from the book. And so I think bringing my, you know, experience and over a decade of experience into that job. I mean, I was, we shot it in Atlanta, so it wasn't, I, it was sort of unfamiliar territory to me in terms of the crew and the location. So it was a lot of trusting and, and allowing, you know, bringing in the right people that, mm-hmm. you know, getting referrals and make, hoping that you brought in the right people. But it was, it was challenging for, you know, like any movie, there's, there's a set of challenges, but I think it was always about, you know, honoring the book in the beginning so yeah now one of the isms of working in this industry is that it's incredibly difficult nearly impossible to make your make a first feature like to get to that point you are you know the one percent of the one percent to make a second feature is a whole other career milestone to cross that's incredibly difficult to get there Congratulations on finishing and soon releasing your second feature. So talk to us about the the journey from getting from Tangled to number two. Yeah, Blood, Sweat and Cheer. It it was such a it was such a fun, such a fun dark campy comedy. And I'm I'm mm-hmm. so excited for everybody to, to be able to see it. You know, I had come into twenty twenty or two thousand twenty two, excuse me, the last so I had, you know, we had Tangled, my first feature had come out on Passion Flicks and it was streaming on Amazon. And, you know, I was really interested in keeping the momentum going and working with my agents to 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 just really start to get into more rooms and to bring the project with me and connect with as many people as I could. So I started out the year just taking as many general meetings as I could. And for those who maybe don't know what a general is, it's another a fancy way of just saying it's sort of like a a casual first date get to know you with someone a, a, a person in development who you know potentially down the line will have work and think of you that's that's the hope uh, yeah. with those meetings and so I took forty one generals last year and wow. just went to town on yeah I was my agent just kicked kicked it up into high gear and and knew that that was really important to me and planting the seeds and being able to to come into these rooms having done the first feature and talk about what I was excited about and what I wanted to do next and so ultimately the breadcrumbs that led to make blood sweat and shear was from a general that I had at the beginning of the year and I was pitching a totally different idea 
mm-hmm. about a, a young girl who was a, a soccer player and sort of went similar to my life. And I felt it was a, a, you know, a project that was very obviously near and dear to my heart, but mm-hmm. at the end of it, the pitch, they said, you know, Oh, do you still play soccer? That's such an interesting story. And I said, you know, I, I hadn't played since I was in high school. So I was like, uh, I mean, I have it in a long time and I'm very out of shape. And they're like, we have a women's soccer team here in Los Angeles. We play every weekend. Do you want to join? And I'm like, sure. I'll, why not? I'll uh-huh. give it a shot. I'm not that, you know, I'm not in shape. I'm not nearly what I was like great player as I was in high school. But so, you know, six months later, I'm playing on this, these women's soccer team now for a couple months. And another full circle. Another full circle. Absolutely. And, you know, I get an email one day from Mar Vista and it was a direct offer for this movie. And they just wow. said, you know, we, you were referred to us by a colleague of ours who I happened to play with on the soccer team and they loved Tangled and were a big fan. And so, yeah, I read the script and was just like, oh, this is going to be what a, what a delight, what a treat. You know, there's nothing more exciting than getting a script and having a really flawed, complex, messy female character yeah. at the center of it. And just yeah. like, you know, it was just such an opportunity to really do something different. Like I had never done a dark comedy before and that really interests me. And it had these kind of, I envisioned these tones very much of the high school movies that we grew up, you know, yes. watching and sort of the like, you know, Mean Girls and, you know, Heather's the Worlds and Clueless and yeah. all and all these kinds of fun. And I just was like immediately taken by it by the opportunity and the potential for the project. So I signed on and the rest is history, I guess. But that's yeah. amazing. So for the person and I put myself in that category who is newer to the industry. Can you talk to us about like who is Mar Vista and what are they in relationship to Tubi? What roles do they play in making the film? Yeah, Mar Vista's gone through quite quite a growth spurt in the past couple of years. They were bought by Fox, I believe, a year or so ago, maybe more now. And so they're expanding their roster and budget levels. And there's a lot of different people within the company and they're all doing different different kinds of budgets and depending on who you go to, they'll be making different things. So in my case with Blood, Sweat and Cheer, Tubi has a deal with Mar Vista and they're making a slate of films every year. And, and that, what they're looking for changes every year, depending on what the need is. And so, you know, in the case of Mar Vista, they're also like, they might be doing sub million dollar movies, but they're also going to do over a million dollar movies, depending on who at the, where you're taking it. Cause Fox has the opportunity to take it to other networks that aren't necessarily Tubi, but Tubi has the volume and the opportunity to make more than one film. And a lot of they're looking at new talent and new writers. And the writer who wrote my 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 script was the first time uh, writer in that space. So it was really exciting that they were oh. open to first and second time filmmakers. They're you know very open and you know just so collaborative and were allowing me to really bring my voice to the material Mm -hmm. and supporting it in a way that ultimately I think you it shows up on the screen and there wasn't you know those unfortunate stories you hear about too many cooks in the kitchen and you know there's 17 different you know people trying to make your movie and it wasn't like that at all it's very much you know a family run collaborative environment and and I'm not the only person that feels that way I've talked to other directors 
uh, and happen to be female uh, friends of mine who also direct and who've worked for Tubi and or excuse me, who have worked for Mara Vista. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they all say the same thing. So it's good to know that it's not a singular experience, that it's very much how they operate. And yeah, I'm so grateful that they ultimately gave me the opportunity. So. Absolutely. I mean, you also absolutely earned the opportunity given your experience, but there's something mm-hmm. really refreshing. It's so easy to like villainize the development execs of the world, the studios of the world. Um, but re- it's way more nuanced and way more complex. And and sometimes there's so much value in taking the time to understand, one, the goals of these partners. And I truly believe like these entities are, at the end of the day, they're people who want yeah. to make things and want to create opportunities for people, especially if they're investing in new voices, because we need to especially like especially in historically underrepresented communities we need to have our first and second chances and opportunities to 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 make our work so that's so inspiring and exciting and cool yeah and also to the to the point your point of like having the autonomy to create a film this you know dark comedy thriller that that has this through line that shows in the work. And, and I think it it's very exciting. And sometimes I see a movie in a theater and I'm like, too many cooks. I know it. I could just feel it. Yeah. It's yeah. hard. Making a movie is very hard. It is, but it, it's nice when it, it's top, it's top down. I mean, and I, I mean, from Tubi to Mara Vista to my producers, I mean, it was, it was such a, I was just like blown away at just like how, like much they love the film and had such few notes and were just like when they did have the notes they were such thoughtful like creative meaningful like wonderful notes and I was just that that does not happen all the time and mm-hmm. and so they kind of set me up I guess in this bar they've set this bar pretty high for me now but but that's how it should be and I think everyone deserves an opportunity to make a film and to be a part of a family and to and to be with people who trust you and, mm-hmm. you know, know that you're there for a reason. And and so, yeah, that's very much a part of that experience for me. I want to talk about your, your building of a family in a way. I think as a director, again, you are setting the tone for not only the final film, but also for life on set. And you're essentially mm-hmm. leading a corporation for a finite amount of time with one singular goal, which is to make this movie. So when you were starting to shoot Blood, Sweat, and Cheer, which you you shot it in Georgia, correct? Um, yes. How, how was that sort of setting up, setting the stage, starting in pre-production into actually filming? I, it, it was quick. I mean, it felt like I was on an episode of television because we had two weeks to uh, prep or a week and a half to prep in Atlanta. I had more time. I had like maybe three weeks in total from the time I got the script to like sign the deal. So like, oh. actually it was like a whole, it was, it was quick, very oh quick. Oh my God. So I, you know, coming into this, I was very glad that I had directed another film in Atlanta the year prior. And I had had more time. I had had more, you know, a month and a half prep my first feature. But with this, it was, you know, we were prepping 
remote, I was prepping remotely in Los Angeles prior to going to Georgia, but it was, yeah, it was, it was a fast moving train, but it was, it was enough. You know, we, we had three weeks to shoot. Mm-hmm. I think it was the 12, I think it was a 13 day shoot. So it was, it wasn't even 15 days. It was quick. Oh my I, I, so we, we were shoot like you just you hit out, you know, really there's nothing you can never not be prepared enough. That's the one thing that is just like ingrained in me from, from day one of just like talk about prep. It was just like all consuming every day, but it was, but it was fun because I was able to really focus on just my job and, and other films. I'm sure as independent filmmakers, we've all somehow produced our own projects. Like I'm sure all of us are very much aware of the work that goes into not just directing, but all the departments and you're juggling 40 different jobs and, and so I was very glad that I could just do the one job yeah. Frankly, yeah. and not have to worry about everything else. I mean, that wasn't always the case with my project that I had directed. And I think it's good to like know whatever department does and have a, have an appreciation, understanding and a way to communicate like with those departments, you know, going into a project, but yeah, it was great. I mean, it was very quick, but we were able to get what we needed and, it was just about scheduling our shoot successfully and knowing where we were spending the money and where we were spending our time and how mm-hmm. to really prioritize that and know what was ultimately the most important and where I wanted to spend the time. And, you know, we were able to, I mean, it was crazy, but we, we ended up filming in multiple high schools. So like one high school was really three different locations, mm-hmm. the beauty of movie magic. But ultimately I think what, you know, we had no other choice because we're filming in the middle of the school year and these were active schools. Active schools. Yeah. So it was, just, you know, we're just like, Oh my gosh, this is, you know, piecing this together and you're hoping it all matches. And yeah, there was a lot of challenges, but yeah, we were just off to the races right, right away. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I assumed that it was all one school, a la the production company, American high, where they, I guess they carve out a school and, shoot it all in one location one location and also it can be a hospital and also it can be this other thing but you were actually in real schools real life functioning schools yeah american high actually bought a high school so their entire production company i actually know a lot of people in development over there when they started and they they're very lucky in that they bought a high school so that they can actually do what they want to the space and they own it and they them, you know, obviously where American High came from, which yeah. the, the name was that they actually bought a high school. And so all their movies like have some themes centered around, you know, people in high school, a comedy, that kind of thing. That was not our case in this film. We ended up just finding the right locations based on obviously what I was looking for and the sort of nostalgic, yeah. you know, night. I wanted it to feel like a John Hughes movie. So I wanted to be able to find that really classic brick in the pink bathroom. Yes. I mean, my God, I walked into that space and I was like, I feel like I'm in the breakfast club right now. This is, uh, we didn't paint it. Like it just was like that. Uh. And I was just like walking back in time. And so there was just like those little gems as I was scouting. And I just like, Oh, this is so perfect. Like just so could not have <laughs> so lucky, yes. you know, when you, you really, I think that's one thing as a designer that I bring into the work is like finding locations is half the battle when you're on a lower budget film. And, you can't build something. You can't mm-hmm. spend the money and build build your dream. You really have to get resourceful and like find the right locations and think about all the other logistics and what else you can film there. And so we did end up filming a lot of different pieces of different things 
at different schools. We were able to piece everything together to make it feel like a cohesive mm-hmm. school, but it ultimately was really like a checkerboard of <laughs> figuring out where all the pieces fit, just, you know, making sure we had all the other locations that, in addition to the school, made sure it made sense, you know? Yeah. So when, yeah. when you're, especially when you're, you know, you don't have a $60 million budget for a film. When you're going to a location outside of just the general aesthetic, what else are you thinking about as director, especially in this fast and furious week and a half prep period that you had? Like how many days were you location scouting? And like, what was the most difficult location to find? Yeah, those are, those are, those are great questions. Cause I, I think ultimately those, you know, every job, they have a different set of problems and challenges that come up. And in this case of this film, I, I pre-scouted like, like with photos and then narrowed it down to a couple. And we only had, you know, normally you've got like tech, you know, you've got a tech scout, director scout, and then like an official scout with everybody there. That was all like, it was one, one, one scout, basically yeah. one day, one scout. Uh, and so <laughs> it was very, you know, fast paced, but what I look for, the biggest thing is company moves on a lower budget, fast moving train what will kill your day more than anything else is company moves. And so how can I, you know, in these spaces, how can I get the most out of it? Like, Oh, I can film three days here. I can film two days. Oh, I can film the bleachers exterior and use the gym for the other two days. And like, how can I, you know, find all the nooks and crannies and get the most out of our day days out of Mm -hmm. locations so that we're not spending two hours in the middle of our day moving in location. And so that was, that's a big part of what I'm thinking about. Not only visually, creatively, obviously, first and foremost, is just telling the story. Can my production designer, like, is this too much to like, can you paint the whole school pink? Like, obviously, that's not going to happen. And so can I, can it work on a creative level? Can it work on a logistic level? Can it work on a creative level? And can, can at the end of the day, can, you know, is there a base camp close? Like, can I drop my trailers and walk to set in five minutes or is it a logistical thing where you're busing mm-hmm. people in and you're losing an hour of your day every day because people have to get in a pass van and go to location. And those are all mm-hmm. things that like, those are not at the top of my priority list, but they're things that I'm thinking about because they are cutting into like your day ultimately and what you're going to have time to shoot. And so yeah. I think the, the hardest location to find was actually the house. Mm-hmm. Renee, our lead character's house was the hardest location to find. And I, I, I think I toured like, seven houses and we kept running into problems based on the area or it wasn't it had to serve everything right it had to serve the story like logistics like where everybody was going to be like mm-hmm. trailers you know all, all there was also scenes that took place outside there was a driveway there was all these like little moments that we needed to have that were part of the script and so i it was down to the wire. We were going into the first week of filming and we still, we had some time, like we hadn't locked the house location. And I remember we had like two, like two houses left to scout. And I'm like, okay, this, this has to be, I have a good feeling about this today. We got to get it. And we, the, the location manager, who's um, such a doll and such a sweetheart, he ended up, he had a friend who was like, I'm, you know, why don't you just come by my house? You know, uh-huh. I want to re- redo the floors anyway. And so we got so lucky. I walked into that house and I said, Oh my gosh, yes, this is it. Like, you know, it's such a hard line to find a house that feels like within the means of the character mm-hmm. and like realistic, but she rented it. Obviously she didn't own it because 
she's not making that kind of money, but like, how do you like justify it both in the story, but also for all those other lists of millions of right. things, you know, the producers like pulling their hair out because you know, they have to deal with the homeowners association or whatever, whatever that problem may, may be. And so we were so lucky and fortunate, like at the very last location that we found this house, but which yeah. feels right out of a John Hughes movie. So kind yes, of perfect. Good. Um, well that it's, it's interesting because I think that is something as an emerging director, we often don't think about, or we're thinking like, what do we have access to? Or uh, so many times, like I see things and I'm just like, why did you choose to shoot in a, in an apartment that clearly belongs to a 23 year old dude? And there's just white walls and like, you know, this isn't where this character would live. So I think there's so much value to even trying to find the right space that can help fill in for the fill in the gaps of who this character is and what this story is like it across the board will connect dots for the viewer Mm -hmm. so so you you're shooting you have 13 days and one of the things that's obviously so critical to a film working is casting and the core relationship between the the mother and daughter was something that really stood out to me because I was like, one, I believe this. Two, I'm here with both of them, even though they're both flawed in their own way. Can you talk to me a little bit about what the casting process was like and what it was like to almost have to instantly create this mother-daughter tension? Yeah, I was really fortunate to work with the same casting director on Tangled as I had on Blood, Sweat, and Cheers. So Lindsay Jag was the casting director on both both my features. And so it was nice to have a familiar face going into this project and you know the challenge of finding local talent in Atlanta and also coupling it with just you know obviously logistics budget timing availability so there was all those things going into this movie um but I was so fortunate that you know that I ended up with such a great cast and and Tam and Sersok and Monroe Klein just they knocked out of the park and they they were such kindred spirits from the, just the very first meeting. I just, I was so lucky. And, and frankly, the whole cast, I mean, we, we got very lucky. Everybody just had their own personality and, and brought such a quirky, these kind of quirky characters that you want in a film like this, that really ground this high school and this world. And, and Monroe is also an incredible dancer. And so that was also part of the casting process for the role of Cherie and, I got very lucky that I got both, you know, mm-hmm. she's was just, she's her career is taking off and I'm so proud to see her doing so much in, in the dance space as well as the film space. And so that was an aspect of the character that was important to me because ultimately to be a, to have three less than three weeks and to be show up as a professional dancer, you know, you can't really fake that. <laughs> you know, right, you, right. So really all the, all the cast that all the dancers, anyone that had to dance in the movie, we had them submit dance tapes as well as their acting tape. So mm-hmm. I wanted to look at both how they moved. This also included our, you know, ultimately we went out with offer onlys for our lead, but, but knowing that the lead that we were offering, you know, for, for Tamman's case, we, I knew that she had a dance background. So I wanted yeah. to make sure that they're capable and that they're willing to, to put in that work. And, and when you have such a technical aspect of a film and such a short amount of time and you're learning these dances that I knew that we were going to be limited on time and 
wanted to make it as good as possible and, and making sure they all felt comfortable and got the moves down. It was was quite a feat. (laughs) Uh, Well, the, you can't pull this movie off without great dancing. And I think I I was very impressed and I was just like, I could never move like that. I'm like so impressed. Poor Tamin, man, to her credit, she, I remember the day we shot the whole dance sequence and she just, she had bruises all over her legs. I mean, she just, she was, she committed. I mean, just went, she just totally committed to to that dance. And um, there's moments of the dance when you're on their knees and then they're, you know, they're just up and down and moving. And so it was, I even tried to learn the dance. And let me tell you, I did not get very far. It was, it was so, it was so hard. I was just blown away. I'm like, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it kind of, it feels very on brand for her character, like a little method to be fully committing that hard. <laughs> so uh, let's talk. Um, and and as we get to the end of the, the interview here, I want to talk about the thriller, the tension, the, I'll say it, horror of this film and like bringing that out from a performance perspective, but also in post-production, which is so much part of the building of and finding the right pace for tension and thriller. How did you keep that honest when you were approaching the final version of the film? Yeah, it, there was things that I had in mind from the very beginning that ultimately were in the film. And I, I would, the shorthand was I would tell, okay, so this is our, you know, Mean Girls campy meets our black swan moment at the end. And so that was sort of our shorthand in a way to kind of get across a very simple point, which was the psychological like downward spiral of this woman and what she went through to ultimately, you know, fulfill a lost dream that she never had in high school, which by the way, was inspired by a real woman. This entire story uh, was inspired by a real, real events. I should say not specifically one person, this this has happened a number of times where people go back to high school and impersonate. Well, this, this is re- this has really happened, and I and I do think it has a lot to do with just what it means to be a, you know what it means to be young and what it means mm-hmm. to have your dreams and to be at a place where those dreams were not fulfilled and to go back to a time and a place where you felt like you were on top of the world. I mean that maybe wasn't everyone's experience in high school, but it, I definitely think in the case of of our like, lead character with Renee, that was a place in a time that she felt that she had a sense of control and a sense of self again. So it was building up to the end. And obviously I don't want to go into too much spoiler territory, but I will say it was, yeah, those darker moments are what ultimately to your point are the sort of thriller est black swan moments of our film. And we, that was very intentional. And I wanted to play with the audience's perspective about whether or not this was really happening if this was in her head if she was really there and so she was this kind of faulty narrator at times and that was intentional and how we filmed it and those kind of fun moments that happen towards the end and you get a sense of like is she really alone is she in her head is she really experiencing this like how is she interpreting the moment because ultimately Mm -hmm. we're with her and it's her point of view and so that was part of the conversation from the very beginning with um, a cinematographer, um, Greg, who's incredible, and just how we were going to shoot it. Most of the film was shot with on sticks until the very end, where the majority of the film, frankly, the whole end, 15, 20 minutes climax of the film is shot handheld. And that was very intentional because mm-hmm. we wanted to feel 
the uneasiness growing and sort of this volatile moment of volcanic <laughs> when is it going to explode yes so that was all intentional and in the approach and then in post-production also the way you, what you hear and what you don't hear and when the music comes in when the score drops in and out that was also a huge part of in, intentionality I had with mm-hmm. working with the sound design team and the, my editor and and all all of the all those pieces you know coming together yeah was a combination of multiple conversations and just people's ideas and and ultimately just showing this woman who you know i wanted there to be empathy but also this wildly ridiculous journey that she goes on and so it's i don't know it's a fun little fun gray area yes well you took us there you took us there and there's no holding back i can't wait for the world to see it where can folks follow your work moving forward I am on all Facebook, Instagram, IMDb Pro, and my website. And it's all just my first and last name. So Tracy Hayes, my spelling is a little different than, than most, T-R-A-C-I-H-A-Y-S. And yeah, whenever I have updates, I try to stay on top of on top of things. And yeah, I mean, I'm excited for everyone to see this and for what's, you know, what's going to come next. So. Thank you so much for joining us. And I can't wait for our listeners to hear all the details and see blood, sweat, and cheer. Yay. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm so excited. I'm glad, uh, you know, I'm excited for everyone to see it. And thank you so much for, for having me. Thank you so much, Tracy, for taking us through this process of making your second film on a tight budget, a tight timeline, and an incredibly tight turnaround. It's so impressive. 13 days of shooting. Holy moly. What I love about Tracy's story is that she was able to prove to people that her work as a director is worth investing in. When she was working for the production company where she convinced somebody to let her make a short, the short itself performed so well that it proved she could do a film. It was a proof of concept and the numbers don't lie. It's something we don't talk a lot about here in filmmaking is at the emerging stage, how do we, how can we use data to make our case? Something to think about. Thank you to our listeners and again to Tracy for joining us. And I hope you enjoy her film. It's a dark love letter to Heather's Mean Girls, The Breakfast Club, and Clueless. So if you're a John Hughes fan, check it out. If you're not, check it out. You can follow No Film School across social media at nofilmschool.com. You can also like and subscribe to the podcast across all platforms and find more articles, including one from Tracy coming up at nofilmschool.com. Thank you so much.